you, gentlemen. It's, it is good to echo Jeremy, just to sing his praises together, is it not? It's so, so good. And if you're visiting with us, I want to give another warm welcome to you. It's good to have you with us today. I pray that you've been warmly received, and I trust that you will continue in this worship with us here at Westmont Bible Chapel. And we do so now by taking our copy of God's Word. Why don't you take that in hand? And turn to Romans. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, just look in the racks in front of you. You will see a Bible there for you. Turn to Romans chapter 3. That is where we continue in our study. Romans chapter 3. Westmount, one of the appeals of religion more broadly, religion said more broadly, one of the appeals has always been a sense of identity. Identity. For the Christian religion, we could say more specifically a sense of protective identity. A such identity that is a shelter from the assaults of today, an identity that provides hope the fate of tomorrow, like we just sang, strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow, protective. Yes, Christian identity helps us here, and we recognize that. Some go further, religion for them, think of protection, religion for them is like an immunity card in life. When stopped, and we think figuratively here, when stopped, when pulled over, when questioned, they will pull out their identity card. Figuratively, we could say, thank you. Thank you, moral police. I get what you're trying to do, but I am a Christian. Yes, I am a Christian, so I'm fine. You best get on catching bad guys. I am a Christian. Get after those not in the camp, those not in the club. Get going after them. I submit that absolution defense is not as extreme as you might think. Religious, corporate, Christian identity cards are just so prevalent, in fact, that they've rendered the title Christian virtually meaningless in one sense. As such, decades ago now, the title Christian was functionally rendered indistinguishable. And the unbeliever could rightly say, what does that even mean, that you're a Christian? Card-carrying Christians, if you will, hiding behind the title, and thus claiming license in their sin, taking shelter beneath cries of belonging to God, claiming to be creatures of grace. We are God's people after all. Named Christians, waving flags of grace, so prolific in their flashing of Christian badges that truly distinguishing a true child of God was increasingly difficult. As such, you can imagine this. A new name and a new title and a new identity was needed. Is that not true? Well, if this one no longer distinguishes the Christian, we need a new one. And so the rise of the term evangelical. The new ID card. Make sure you have it. Gospel-centered religion, don't you know? I am evangelical was the cry. That's my group. That's my religious identity. 
That is my blanket. Yet that title too soon fell victim to the same problem. Soon it too was shown to be meaningless. Christian, evangelical, no one's looking different. In recent years, new cards have been printed. Some say reformed, some say Bible-believing. All with attempts to define what sets a man or woman of God apart and why. Because the old labels, the old titles, the old identities are not revealing much of anything as a so-called Christian lives their life. Last time in Romans, as we close chapter 2, this was one of the perils of security. The calling card, right? I am a Jew. I have heritage. I have identity. Remember the great Jewish badge of protection. I am just fine because I have a label. Group status and title, however, as we learn, does not save you. But here is the point, and need to keep this argument firmly fixed in our minds. Here's the point as we turn to Romans 3. Corporate identity. See this, Westmount. Corporate identity is a vehicle, indeed it is, in which God communicates who can save you and how you can be saved. I hope that makes sense. Corporate identity is the vehicle in which salvation, the message of salvation has come. So that, in that sense, it is true. A corporate entity can be and is with God the means by which the good news of the righteousness of God in salvation is delivered to humanity. There it is. The righteousness of God in the gospel of God, that message was given that way. To the Jew first, the good news, remember, in the Old Testament, and then to the Greek, the Gentile in the new and beyond. A corporate body, you could say each of those was, given that message at different times and in different administrations, given to the Jew first to be a light to the nations, then with Christ's arrival given to the Gentiles to be a proclamation to all nations. The message always and still is today that God offers salvation to the individual Salvation offered by way of the righteousness of God delivered through Christ. Now that is the righteousness of God positively in the gospel. It's a positive message. Salvation in Christ alone. Yet that is not the only aspect of the righteousness of God in the gospel. Is that not true, Westmount? Hopefully you're keeping this in mind as we track what the righteousness of God is. It is a positive message indeed. But there is a negative aspect We could say it that way as well. Remember, salvation is not good news unless we understand our plight. The righteousness of God, as we've seen in chapters 1 and 2, upholds that standard. That's what it must do. For it to be a standard at all, it must be upheld. And this would be God's righteousness legislated negatively, punitively as well. Not just with messages of salvation, which is... The main thing. But what do we mean by that? There's a positive sense. What's the negative sense? Meaning individual sin deserves punishment. Righteousness wouldn't be righteousness if that wasn't true, right? 
It does, no matter who you are. Chapter 1, chapter 2, that's what we've been learning. Just because the message of salvation is delivered through your corporate body, through your identity, does not mean that you personally receive blanket immunity to God's righteousness. That really is it. That, that's the argument Paul has here. So we revisit it. It'd be like the pharmacist. It says, I'm a part of a body of pharmacists. I dispense medicine and cures. And just because I do so, I'm immune to everything. And the person would say, we haven't taken it. Well, it doesn't matter. I dispense cures, so I'm good. Here's my pharmacy card. It's nonsensical. But it's what we do. Identification is not immunity. I can't say this enough because this is what the Word of God is saying. Identification is not immunity. Just because you're Christian, just because you're here... Just because you claim Christ is not immunity in one sense. But that is what the ancient Jew lived and claimed in terms of Yahweh and being God's chosen people. And Paul, of course, what's Paul been doing? As Paul does so well. He's been flattening, he's been dismantling, he's been crushing that claim. All humanity, all moralists, everyone... Yes, you and me as well. Yes, you, Jew, subject to judgment. We pick up that train of thought here as we return to Romans this morning. Let's consider the text before us. We're going to look at the first eight verses of Romans 3. Look at them with me. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true. Everyone were a lie, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? Some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. Let us pray. Oh, our Lord, give us ears to hear, eyes to see your word, Lord. Let it penetrate deep. Let it transform and regenerate if need be. Oh God, we beg and pray in Christ's name. Amen. God is righteous. Despite, as we'll see this morning, despite advantage of nationality, despite the unfaithfulness of individuals, despite the protests of men. That's what we're going to see in this passage. All here. So let's just jump right in and begin. Number one, first point. God is righteous despite national advantage. God is righteous despite national advantage. To begin here, it's helpful to back up and not only be reminded of Paul's argument from chapter 2, but let's go to the pinnacle of that argument, and you find it at the end of chapter 2. Let's back up and get a running start here in verse 25. Remember this. For circumcision indeed is of value. Remember the circumcision, the badge of the Jew, is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? 
then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. We stop for a moment there. Circumcision, remember the badge of identity to the Jew. Paul says that badge can be meaningless. How? Look what he says, by law-breaking, which any honest human being recognizes that we're all guilty of. So as a Jew, reading those verses, imagine the Jew the really devout Jew even, if you will, reading through Paul's argument, gets to the end of chapter 2, and you can imagine the protest that's simmering, and it bubbles up in verse 1 of chapter 3. What is it? Well, what advantage has the Jew then? What advantage? Or what is the value of circumcision? I've been a devout Jew. What's the advantage? You can imagine that. Well, that's an appropriate and understandable question as this third chapter opens. The inspired word is swift in response. Look at verse 2, swift. What's the advantage? What's the value? Much in every way. Paul aims to reset the pendulum right in the middle here. The response is not to swing right by the Jew and bypass the Jew and all of the advantages and values of Jew. No, that's not it. But many do that, and they come to passages like this. And it needs to be stated Again, that this is a spot where the Jews get attacked in one sense as a nation. Well, that's not the point. We'll have much more to say about the nation of Israel later. But Paul and the New Testament have come, and they say it's no longer about the Jew anymore. It's done. The Jews are done. That's what they say when they come to things like this. But look what Paul is doing. Look very closely here. Paul returns with that thinking returns with a sharp counter to that thinking and to that sentiment. He says, verse 2, look, verse 2, to begin with, in other words, I'm going to have much to say in this letter about that argument, but he says, to begin with, first of all, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. You could even say, chiefly, firstly, if I'm going to say anything, and Paul will, especially as we get into the later chapters, if I'm going to say anything about the Jew in Israel, this is the thing that needs to be said. The Jews were given first, entrusted with, look at it, the oracles. That just simply means the divine words of God. We've studied this, right? Remember in Exodus? These are the words of the law, remember, from Moses. And we've studied this midweek, Wednesday nights. These are the words of the prophets, the message to Israel. We know this, Westmount. And Paul simply references that. That message, as you open your Old Testament in particular, was given first and foremost directly to the Jew. These words of God, to say it more pointedly, were not given to just any nation, but to just anyone who is listening. It was given to one nation, Israel. Their national advantage then was that they received God's word first. And I would say, would you not agree, that's an advantage. And those words, remember, were not just divine musings, random God thoughts, right? No, not at all. No, they were what? The words of salvation. The words of good news. Do you remember that? The message that God actually does offer mercy to the repentant. To the one, as Jerry led us through this morning, to the one that absolutely abandons themselves. 
and says, I have nothing to give. I am nothing to offer. And it's all in with Yahweh. That's always been the message, the words of good news given first through Israel. That is the advantage the Jew possessed. They were entrusted with those words first. Of course, the Jews were entrusted with many other things. I've already commented on later in the letter. Paul is going to come back to this. In fact, chapter 9 will outline those more when Jewish identity and Jewish future come to a head. In fact, we can peek there now. It's helpful here because this, first of all, really doesn't get picked up till Romans 9. If you were to turn to Romans 9, just by way of preview, and again, this is where Paul will really zero in on the nation of Israel and God's sovereign choice of Israel and then hence their future. Look at what he says in verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. What What a list of advantage for the Jew. Do you see that? They've got all of these things. But not just that. Look in verse 5. Let's not miss this. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race. Look at this. According to the flesh. So from their ethnicity is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. You talk about advantage. What is the Jewish advantage? They were given, look at it, the law and promises. And what's more, look at verse 5. Through their flesh came Messiah. Through Israel came seed. That's an advantage. That certainly is value. Back to Romans 3. Corporately, the nation has a future, and collectively, one day, Jews will repent. And that's the point in context here. As we get toward Romans 11, if we were to keep going, we would see that. That's Paul's point. They will corporately turn. The nation will finally, one day, embrace embrace Messiah. Now, recognizing that, let's keep the balance here. Remember, we're getting the pendulum right in the middle. Listen, that corporate salvation, that truth of Israel's future, future salvation for Israel, is an expression of the righteousness of God. He promised it. He's given it. It will come to pass for Israel, right? That's an expression of the righteousness of God. And remember, it's one dimension. Further, through that one nation, God makes salvation available to all nations. Now, that is true, but of course, that would be very different to saying God will save everyone in that nation because they're a part of that nation. You see that? Every single person will and must be saved because they're part of that nation. That's a huge difference. But that's where we take the identity leap. That's where we look for immunity. Well, I'm part of, so I'm okay. God's unconditional promises were, listen, and I pray we get this in our minds right, were to the nation, corporate, collective, the nation of Israel, not to all individual Jews. You see that? Jewish ethnic advantage and value was not unconditional individual personal security. In fact, if we were to read the very next verse in Romans 9, verse 6, this is what it says. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. There it is, right? Not all, just because they have the Israel badge, are really true Israelites. Not all are children of Abraham. And that's the point. Because not all in Israel have the faith, the faith given by God to recognize the righteousness of God embodied in Christ so that they would be made right before Yahweh. 
They may have the badge, right? They may have all their law-keeping and circumcision and what not, but they do not have faith. No, the advantage to the Jew, here it is, was privilege. The value was message responsibility. There it is. And that is great advantage, isn't it? It's great responsibility. And beloved Christian, it's no different to us today. You, we have the message, right? Do we not? You possess the message of good news before the nations. And how are the nations doing, by the way? You possess the message before the nations. That is your great commission. But your security is not in the fact that you're a messenger. We can't say this enough. You gain and you shouldn't any security in the fact that you're here this morning. Or that you heard the message. Or that you'll go out full and feel... No, that's not your security. That you're a messenger. Christian, the righteousness of God grants privilege and responsibility. Praise God. Corporately. Privilege and responsibility corporately. Just as it grants peace and security individually. You see those two things? Let's not confuse the two as the Jew did. The righteousness of God, despite national advantage, you could say the righteousness of God works through national advantage to communicate the blessing to all nations. But it does not depend on it. That's one. Two, God is righteous despite individual unfaithfulness. God is righteous despite individual unfaithfulness. That's our second point. Now, as we move to verse 3, we need to see that Paul is not moving in one sense, to a new idea or a new theme. He's not here in verse 3, shifting gears dramatically. What he will do now is simply move to the obvious implication of the point. And it is this. Well, and we could say God is faithful to Israel, but Israel is filled with unfaithfulness. Right? Romans 9, 6 and others are filled with unfaithfulness. And that is precisely the heart of the question found in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Well, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Good question. What if some, and that's a generous some, or an understated some, I should say, were unfaithful? We know that most of Israel was unfaithful, right? Most of them were. So, does their faithlessness, the faithlessness of the majority, one would say, nullify the faithfulness of God? That's a great question, and it is the question. How does humanity, the chosen people, our Christian, how does our unfaithfulness impact God's faithfulness? And I'll tell you why that 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 is a good question. Because loud and clear, we answer that question one way, don't we? It's our tit-for-tat currency, isn't it? You let me down... And I have every right, we say, to let you down. Right? We know this. You let me down, so I let you down. You break my trust, and I owe you nothing, we reckon. You turn from me, and naturally we conclude, I can turn from you. And in our minds, day to day, that makes a whole lot of sense, doesn't it? You were unfaithful to me, so cut me some slack if I'm unfaithful to you. That just makes sense. That's the world, isn't it? We know that. But beloved, this text 
forces us to stop, full stop, and consider our God. That is our way, no question about it, to give others what they are due, but it is not God's way. Does the Jew's unfaithfulness to God nullify God's faithfulness to the Jew? Look at verse 4. I love this. By no means. If you could see this in the original, this is the strongest possible negation in the Greek. Paul picks a pen here to say, in no possible way. One commentator called this the recoil of abhorrence. That's good, but I'll tell you what's better if you have a King James in your hand. What does it say? God forbid. God forbid that that would be true. Oh, God forbid this to be true. One of the great truths of who God is is that our God is what? Faithful. Sometimes, when he feels like it, always. Always. I pray, and I'm preaching to myself right now, that you recognized tomorrow, every minute this week, that he is faithful to you no matter what this week brings. He is faithful always. There is absolutely nothing that can take away, violate, jeopardize, remove, stain, or mar the faithfulness of God. I pray you take comfort in that. Nothing can take away the faithfulness of God. In fact... To hammer the point home, look at verse 4. Let God be true, Paul says. Let God be true, though what? Everyone were a liar. Look at the canvas. Whole canvas full of liars. And the cynic today might say, yeah, and their deity too. No, let God be true, every though even everyone was a liar. In other words, even if every human being was a liar, and naturally we are, and this is true, more true than we'd admit, Even in that reality, let God be true. God remains faithful. God is righteous. Let's not get off track here. And we could do a major excursus on the faithfulness of God, right? We could do that. But let's remain in context to the argument that Paul is, is saying here. And it is to his righteousness, the faithfulness that makes up his righteousness. He is faithful to uphold his righteousness to all. And the righteousness of God, remember, contains both a positive and a negative sense. In other words, the righteousness of God contains both salvation and judgment. So while the righteousness of God is what upholds God's saving work to Israel, here it is, the righteousness of God is also what legislates God's necessary judgment to the Jews. See that? It's both. And as you consider that, you might think, okay, okay, but hang on. What of the good Jews? I'm reading this text, and I know that some could be all being unfaithful, but what of the really good Jews? This is how we think. We want to go and find those. I mean, I see reams of unfaithful Jews in the Old Testament, but what are the bright spots? Didn't we mention Moses this morning? What are the bright spots? What of the almost perfects? I I get Moses wasn't perfect in others, but what are the really good, hardworking Jews? What of them? Today, Christian, maybe you're thinking of the really, really good Christians, right? In our fallenness, we have this little orbit around us of the better Christians, the holier Christians. What of them? We'll pull them off the shelf as examples, right? What about the really holy Christians? You know those. The almost perfect, certainly God approaches them differently in their sin, right? Certainly, the righteousness of God to the almost perfects must be different, right? According to our ruler. 
Well, Paul, beloved, is way out in front of you here. He knows exactly what you're thinking, right? Because they're God's inspired words, and the Holy Spirit ultimately knows all and knows exactly what you're thinking. And the Holy Spirit takes us to a really good Jew, and you know who he is, King David. King David. Look again at verse 4. By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. That reference there, do you see it indented in your Bible? In verse 4, is taken directly from Psalm 51. Many of you know what the context of Psalm 51 is. It is David's repentance in the face of grievous sin. Grievous sin. And what is interesting to note as you read Psalm 51 is the way that God, or the way that David, understands the righteousness of God. And this is the point. Paul goes to this psalm because he says, okay, I'm going to go to the Jew of Jews. The one maybe you have in your mind to say, well, he was the most faithful of Jews. Now, we could say much about David's sin, but that's not the point. What we're seeing here is what David understands. So turn to Psalm 51 for a moment. As we keep that context in our mind, David's sin and his repentance. And by the way, in the inspired subscript there, and you see those oftentimes in little print, before each psalm, we get the context. And here, very clearly, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. Do you remember famously, Nathan gives a little parable, David strikes condemnation on the man and says, well, you are that man. And David is struck in that moment in the Holy Spirit with conviction. Well, what David says here is what Paul picks up in Romans 3, and it's found in verse 4. Now, let's look at the whole context because Paul only quotes half of the verse. If you were to look at the second half of verse 4, that is it. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. However, look at the beginning of the verse. Remember, what do we learn in our classes? Every time the New Testament references the old, we need to understand the context of the old. It's very, very helpful here. Verse 4 says this, Against you, David says, and you only, this is Yahweh, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And then look at this, so... Based on that, that I've sinned against you, that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In other words, judgment comes because I've sinned against you. Now, we need to stop for a moment. What does David not do? He doesn't say, okay, hang hang on a second. Wait a minute. I've got my Jewish card somewhere. I've got to pull it. No, he doesn't do that. He says, I've sinned against you and you alone. He doesn't pull out ethnicity. He doesn't hide behind the fact that he's a Jew. He says, against you, I've sinned. There's no identity blanket that can be used here. And this is the point that Paul is saying. David, the Jew of Jews, understands the righteousness of God in salvation, but in judgment. Jew or not, David sinned. And what David, the man after God's own heart, recognizes is this. I have sinned against Yahweh alone and thus Because of my sin, my individual sin, I deserve judgment. Simply, that's it. Yet as the rest of the psalm, many of us know this well, so eloquently conveys God is righteous despite individual unfaithfulness. Despite a sin, repentant David, Jew or not, look at verse 7, is purged with hyssop and washed whiter than snow. Amazing. Why? Because God is faithful in mercy. Beloved, see that God will never, ever turn away the repentant. Never, ever. John 6, 37 says, Whoever comes to me, what? I will never 
cast out. Now that is the righteousness of God to forgive and save the sinner, 1 John 1, 9. Hence in this psalm, Psalm 51, and this is why Paul goes here, we see both sides of God's righteousness upheld. That's what's going on here. David knows that because God is righteous, he individually, personally deserves judgment for his sin. But what does David also recognize? He recognizes that because God is righteous, he can appeal to his character. He understands all the dimensions of the righteousness of God. And that's the point. So we go back to Romans. Church, see the righteousness of God in the argument here in Romans. This is what Paul is doing. He's faithful to save and he's faithful to judge. That's the righteousness of God. It flows back to what we've been seeing and seeing all along. It's not good news unless there's bad news. Salvation is not needed unless you're being judged. And this is the point. The righteousness of God is all of these things, says Paul. It's the point for Paul referencing David and specifically in his sin. Now, beyond David, the true faithful Jews also understood this. Now, I want to just highlight David. This needs to be said. There were other faithful Jews, too, and we at least comment and get a glimpse of them. Think about Nehemiah. Just hear this. In Nehemiah, the returning exiles, there were some that understood this. Nehemiah 9, 32 to 33, in the wake of a great confession of these returning exiles, listen to this. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, and listen to this, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you. In other words, we've gone through hardship. Let it not seem little to you because it's come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people. In other words, they've had hardship. Since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day, they recognize the hardship. But then listen to this in verse 33. Yet you have been righteous. So they call on and recognize the righteousness of God. You have been righteous in all that has come upon us. So in all the misery, in all the toughness, yes, you've been righteous. Why? For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. You see that? Righteous Jews, in a sense, they recognize this hardship is just due because you judge, you save and you judge. And that's the righteousness of God. And they got that. This is not just God is just and faithful, but that is the demonstration of God's justice, say these Jews, and faithfulness as shown against his people's wickedness and sin. They too don't pull out the Jewish card. They just recognize we've been sinful and we deserve this because you are righteous. They recognize that their faithful God was shown to be such. And here's the beauty of this. Despite themselves. That's the truly righteous one that recognizes what they deserve, what they should have. But yet who God is. And like David, these returned exiled Jews and all the truly faithful of Yahweh recognize the righteousness of their God, and specifically the righteousness of God despite individual unfaithfulness. And that is where Paul goes. Now back, as we say, back to Romans 3 in our final point, our final point. We've looked at that God is righteous despite national advantage. God is righteous despite individual faithfulness. And finally, God is righteous despite human reason. God is righteous despite human reason. Continuing the format of this opening of chapter 3, and this is 
a theme very much in these opening chapters of Romans, Paul turns again to questions of protest. Paul, of course, is getting these inspired words, right? The superintendents of the Holy Spirit in the construction of Romans recognizes, especially for a Jew, there's going to be protest. There's going to be protest. And as this happens, and we recognize it is the inspired word, we're reminded, by the way, we are creatures of protest, aren't we? Since the garden, we've had hand up, hang on, hold up, hold up. I've got a protest for that. The Jew is not alone in this malady. This is, as we've seen, a grave humanity problem. We have a massive default, a massive default for excuse for question, for protest. Human beings thrusting up their own questions, thrusting up their protests, and reasoning to God. Now what we need to see here is where human reasoning gets us, and this is what Paul is doing. Look closely here. Even more sinister, human reasoning that is looking for sinful exceptions. That's it. Remember that. And in one sense, I'd submit to you, our excuses are always looking for exceptions, aren't they? Every single time. As such, one may have just heard Paul and think something self-serving like this. It's not a a far stretch. Well, okay, I'm tracking. If David's sin shows the righteousness of God, how is that a bad thing? He's tapped into the righteousness of God. I mean, what's the problem? Even more pedestrian. well, Well, how is it fair then that God would punish us? How is that fair? I mean, our sin shows who God is. Right? Now, before you throw up your hands against such a notion and are aghast at it, I want us to stop together and consider two things. First, I want you to look at the next protest here in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That, the, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. That parentheses in most translations says it all. Well, this is human thinking indeed. And Paul gets that. More than getting it, we would say this, it is included in God's word, this protest. Whatever you may think immediately of your relationship to such a protest, it's here in God's word. And I would submit to you it's because we think this way, not just the Jew, all of us. Secondly, as we have seen, hardly so blunt in our living, we are far more creative in our protests, aren't we? We are a polished people in our protest, polished. We might never say God is unrighteous to chastise and judge us. We may look at that and say, wow, don't say it that way. I mean, there's a better way to say that, right? But how often do we claim that God used our sinfulness for his greater plan? How often have you said that? Certainly not externally, but inwardly. Let me give you examples. We like to reference verses like what? Genesis 50, 20. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Romans 8, 28. He'll work all things together for the good of those who love him. God has means for sin, don't you know? He uses our sin. He's sovereign. Listen, that may be theologically true, generally, but hardly taught individually. Right? That may be true generally, But it is not what is being taught individually. In fact, in Genesis 50-20, it was Joseph's brother's sin used for Joseph's good. So does God work through all things, including sin? Yes. But does he tell you to go and live 
and be carefree in the fact that he's over it all and go ahead and sin? No. The Joseph account is all about God preserving Joseph in Israel in spite of what? Others sin. That's what Joseph recognizes. Listen, nowhere in Scripture does God say, don't worry. Don't worry if you sin. I have a plan for you. You will never see that in the pages of Scripture. Don't you worry about it. I want you to feel better about it. I've got a plan. Never will you see that in Scripture. But beloved, how we live that, don't we? No, God always says what? Don't sin, fat period, full stop. Don't sin, period. Don't sin. That's what God says. Don't sin, period. Don't do it or else what? And the Bible, again, in technicolor says, or chastisement comes. If you're an unbeliever, we don't even need to talk about what that chastisement is because it's eternal. But if you're a believer, the way of the transgressor is hard, says the proverb. Church, let us not fall prey to this perverse reasoning. Stay far away from this. God has not helped one iota from our unrighteousness. Do we get that? He's not helped by your sin. It doesn't matter how romantic it is in the broader church. It doesn't matter all the songs they sing about it. He has not helped one iota by your sin. Nor does he call you to do it. And while we see his faithfulness against our sin... He is still just to inflict chastisement and wrath on us. He is just to do that. Fittingly, Paul provides another strong response in verse 6 because we're not done, are we? We're just not done. Along with a logical inference from his point in verse 5, let's see it in verse 6. The protest goes on. By no means, Paul has to give another strong negation. Not at all. For then how could God judge the world? Not that he has to, but he does give the logical implication. Okay, in that perverse reasoning, that human reasoning, this would be true. The judgment is rendered meaningless. God forbids such thinking. Consider what it means. And this is where we have to stop in our protests. If we want to throw up those protests here in context, it's like saying it renders the whole concept of justice meaningless, right? Think about that. If God uses all things, even good and he's okay with those things, then there's no sense of justice because he's going to work it all out, right? Good is good and evil is actually good because it shows that God is good. So let's just get on living and let's not fret. Paul shows this from the Jewish mindset. For them, it was all the other nations who would be judged. And this is the trap, Christian. We have it today. You're here. You'll be here maybe during the week. You're doing Christian things. And you're not them. And you're okay. And this is what Paul is saying. No, don't hide behind that corporate identity, that corporate immunity. God looks at individual sin. His judgment is judgment, corporately and individually. Paul shows this, and he goes to the Jewish mindset that was so ingrained. For them, it was always the other nations. It was the Gentiles. It was them, them, them. But the Jew, the nation, they... We're the chosen, the preserved nation. But in essence, Paul is saying, Jew, what standard do you think? What standard do you think Yahweh is using to judge them? It's the same standard he's going to use to judge you. He's judging their unrighteousness just as he will do to you. 
Just because we see God's faithfulness and righteousness in the wake of our sin is not a reason to claim that God is unrighteous to punish us. God forbid. We could launch off a whole excursus on people wrongly responding to suffering here. Now, all the perverse gospels we have out there, the Christian should never suffer. And, and, and then they wonder why they, they can't understand that God chastises and disciplines those he loves, Hebrews 12. But I digress. The righteousness of God is still operable in Jew or Gentile, and most certainly here, despite human reason. The righteousness of God exposes it. That is why, beloved, and again, many temptations this morning, you cannot have human reason as the final trump card. We don't live by sight or human reason, do we? By faith. And faith that seeks understanding in the pages of Scripture. And here we see the righteousness of God to broker that standard in all cases. Outside the church and inside it. To the nations and to the Jew. One would think that would be enough, right? Case closed. One may say, well, Paul, good job. But Paul knows his countrymen, and he also knows the human heart. And of course, these inspired words originate from the all-knowing one, even more, that knows the inner workings of each man and woman's heart. And so, and so, the word here gives us two alternate versions of this human reasoning. Again, our protests know no bounds. The first is found in verse 7. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? There's another one. And notice how sharp the distinction is now. The protester cries this. Look with Paul. If through my lie, God's truth abounds, and to his glory, by the way, to his glory, then why am I still being condemned? Right? In other words, lay off. What's all the fuss about? God is still being glorified, right? Lay off. Sound familiar? In more respectable circles, it sounds something like this. Yes, I sinned. I know I sinned. Okay, enough, enough. Can we just get past that? But I take comfort in knowing that God is sovereign. Yes, I did wrong. I did wrong. Okay, let's move past it. But you know what's amazing? Yes, yes, wrong. You know what's amazing? God's truth prevailed. We have a full arsenal of them, don't we? All manner of excuse for our sin. And here it is, beloved. Because the text has already taken us to this place. The only proper response in the wake of our unrighteousness is this. I know my sin. It is ever before me. Against you, God, and only you, God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So, result, my condemnation... The judgment upon me is just. You are justified in your words and absolutely blameless in your judgment. Christian, when is the last time you responded to your sin that way? Like David. When's the last time you said that? And you didn't have a protest. One more, found in verse 8. Why not do evil that good may come? Some people slanderously charge us with a saying. This is the desperation protest, right? It's like, okay, I got to throw it all on the table. Like, let's just have at it. Why don't I do evil? Because good will come from it. 
Throw some mathematics in there. I, I know the form, the divine formula. Let's just do evil. Good may come. Lots of human reason here. This is the extension and full bloom of such human reason. You know, here is a thought. Why not do evil that good may come? Of course, Paul shows us here that such a charge was leveled against him, and it can still be against the church today. It was a slanderous charge then, and it continues to be slanderous now. We know that. We just stop and think about what we're saying. Why not do evil that good may come? However, again, before we're aghast, we just need to consider the very pleasing ways we think of saying that, right? We've got this down. Why not flatter so I can get some good encouragement? Why not flatter? Because the end justifies the means, right? If I flatter, I know it's a, I can get good encouragement from my flattery. Why not be crass or rude with my words, right? Why can't I have filthy talk, even the way I carry myself, to prove a point and show the truth, right? Why not, here's one, gossip and whisper a concern about others Why? So that they're found out. After all, I'm on an exposure mission. So why not gossip and why not slander? Because ultimately, the end justifies the means. And to help them. And you know what? God is glorified in that. Listen, beloved. This is not just cheating on your taxes, is it? Right? That's that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about intentionally doing evil. With the perverse reasoning that somehow God is not only okay with it, but that he's glorified in it. That's who we are. This is knowingly doing evil. I pray you see, maybe as you read Romans 3, 1 to 8, and thought, how is this appropriate to me? You see that it is for all of us. Paul closes this first part of the argument with this, the end of verse 8, and we hardly need to say this, right? Their condemnation is just. I mean, it speaks for itself. There, that is, those leveling this human reason, their condemnation is just. They rightly stand condemned in light of such thinking because God is righteous despite human reason. Do you see that? God is righteous despite human reason. It doesn't matter how many protests we throw up. At this point, you can just see the pendulum swing because we are indeed the Jew as well, creature of the pendulum, right? The Jew goes full circle. And of course, the pre- let's preview verse 9. You just see this coming, right? Well, what then? Are we Jews any better off? There it is, Right? Next pity party for the Jew. Well, well, are we in better off? It moved from the advantage, right, before, to now are we better off? To the what about us, to what was us? And this is what we do. Paul will continue to systematically undo man's so-called righteousness, all while upholding the righteousness of God. That we will see next week, but we have to leave it there for now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for your word and all that it shows us in its grandeur. Father, we recognize our failings. We recognize our weakness in light of looking at your word and understanding it rightly. And Father, we pray that you would help us to repent where we need to repent, to get up and to walk in your righteousness, Lord, that your son provided for us. You're righteous to judge and you're righteous to save. So, Father, may that be our meditation as we consider this text this morning, as we go out now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.